Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you torn trying to choose a wood species for your tool chest? Have you ever wondered how to cut dovetails on angled boards? Is your shop a dark, dreary place in need of brightening up? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 24 of the show for April 19th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Ethan Sincox, Michael Davis Cheshire, and Hernan Carano. Thank you all for signing up on Patreon to support the show, and thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only video episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. Uh, I'd also like to thank Mark Benson for his generous donation that he made through PayPal. Thank you, Mark, for your generosity as well. So nothing really doing in the shop the last couple of weeks. I've really just been trying to focus my efforts on the cabin. So we've been uh, making some progress there. So nothing else really going on other than working on the cabin as uh, was probably going to be the case for the next few months. So uh, with that, let's get right into our questions for today. So our first question comes from Regular Sean. Okay, just someone who calls himself Regular Sean. Okay, Regular Sean. So uh, he says, I'm interested in your thoughts on woods for toolboxes. So I'm assuming you mean like what kind of wood species. Uh, and, and this really, for me, um, so that there's two different ways to think about this. And it really depends on, on what you what type of tool storage you're building. For something like wall hanging storage, I don't think the wood species really matters. You could make it out of you know, pine, you can make it out of plywood or, or any kind of cabinet grade hardwood uh, of your choosing. Uh, you know, there are a lot of wall hanging style cabinets that um, that are made of all different kinds of woods and, and they can, you know, you really have a lot of choices and a lot of options with a cabinet that you're going to mount on the wall or, or say like a, um, um, a cabinet on a stand, something like, uh, I think it's Christian Bexford built, um, where you have a, a cabinet and that cabinet is actually, it's permanent. It's permanently, um, it's more of a permanent fixture. Let's put it that way. It's not necessarily something that you would hang on the wall or mount to the wall because it's on a stand. It doesn't need that. Um, but it's not really meant to be mobile. Uh, and I think Christian built his out of cherry. So, you know, you can really use whatever you want. If you're talking about something like a, a wall hanging cabinet or a cabinet on stand or something of, of that nature that is going to stay where you put it. Um, I think the choice gets a little bit more limited when you start to get into a more traditional tool chest or toolbox or something that you want to be able to move. Um, you need strength. So in most cases, that means plywood or or solid wood, obviously. You're not going to build it out of something like MDF or um, you know, particle board or something like that, because they're just going to be too, too flimsy. Um, and particle board and MDF are really heavy. Um, but that's also the problem with most hardwoods is that most hardwoods are quite heavy other than something like poplar or, 
or aspen, um, you know, most, most hardwoods are quite heavy. So in terms of a, you know, like a traditional tool chest, um, you know, like the, the styles that I've built, um, the Dutch style tool chest, like, um, has become popular. Um, anything where you may want to move it, if you want to be able to take it to classes, even something like, you know, Roy Underhill's tool tote, um, you know, or some type of other type of traveling toolbox. If you want to be able to move it, you don't want to build it out of a heavy hardwood. Um, you know, you can build, you certainly can build a tool chest out of oak, but boy, that thing is going to be heavy. And even before you put any tools in it, it's going to be heavy, but building it out of something like poplar or pine, you're going to reduce the weight considerably. And the, the, it's still going to be plenty strong enough. If you build it with good traditional joinery, um, even, even, uh, screws in a lot of cases, plywood and screws can be fine, but some plywoods can be heavy. Um, pine and screws can be fine. You know, it, as long as you build it solid with good joinery, um, and, and you fasten it together well, you shouldn't really have a problem. Um, you know, and, and building it with pine or poplar is going to reduce the weight significantly over a hardwood, like, you know, like oak or cherry or walnut or something like that. Um, and it's going to make it much easier to move around because once you load that thing up with tools, it's going to weigh a lot. Um, I have two traditional tool chests. They're both built out of pine. The one smaller one, I can actually lift it myself and put it in a car fully loaded with tools. Uh, if I would have built that out of oak, I highly doubt I'd be able to do that. Um, my larger tool chest, that one is also built out of pine. And while I don't lift that one myself and, and can't lift that one myself when it's fully loaded with tools, um, it's really not a problem for two people to lift it and pick it up and put it into the, into the truck. Um, and I would question, you know, if it wasn't so large and awkward, I may actually be able to handle the weight. The weight's not so much an issue of the tool chest. Um, it's just how large and awkward it is. So, um, I would suggest if you're going to build a traditional style tool chest, a Dutch tool chest or a traditional English style tool chest, I would suggest building it out of a lightweight wood like pine or poplar. Um, but again, if you're going with something to hang on the wall or a cabinet on stand of, you know, something in that style, your choice of woods is pretty much unlimited. So our next question comes from Alex Young. Alex says, I'd like to know more about joinery used for carcasses of cabinets, desks, and bookcases, etc. Were the carcasses traditionally rabbited and nailed? Were they dovetailed at the corners? When were bases used and when were the cabinets set onto a base? Is there a book or article that you recommend that I can learn more about this? So Alex, um, I, I'm, I'm going to assume you're talking about traditional um, furniture. So, I mean, these days you can join cabinets and carcasses just about any way you want. You can use biscuits, pocket screws, um, dominoes. You can dovetail the corners. You can rabbit and nail and screw. And there's so many different ways you can do it. You know, there, there's really no limit. It really comes down to what tools you have available, what skills you have available, and uh, how much time you want to spend on the piece and how important, you know, strength of that joinery is. Uh, and, you know, the, the different strengths are going to vary depending on what type of method you use. Now, when we go back and we look at traditional um, case framing, and I'm just going to call it case framing, and that kind of covers, you know, uh, I'm going to say cabinets, but I, I don't, 
I think you might be talking about something like kitchen cabinets and, and kitchen cabinets are really a modern thing that only goes back to maybe like the 1950s. Um, they're, they're really kitchen cabinets aren't something that I would consider traditional. They're more the modern kitchen. Um, from the, you know, the 1940s, 1950s is really when we start to see kitchens with lots of cabinets. Before that, you would have things like Hoosier cabinets um, and, and things of that nature where you had a freestanding cabinet in the kitchen. You didn't have wall-mounted cabinets. So I'm not going to talk too much about kitchen cabinets as they pertain to today because, again, I don't consider those traditional. They really are more of a modern thing. Um, so they don't really – their construction – you can certainly use traditional methods to build kitchen cabinets and, and construct those cases. But I think what you're really thinking is what are the more traditional ways of, of joining cases like bookcases, desks, chest of drawers, etc. So there are two ways that there are more than two ways, but there are two primary ways that you see most often. Um, rabbits and nails and glue are certainly one option. If you're building something like a six board chest, um, you know, even a, a wall hanging cabinet, if you do it right, you can use rabbits and nails. Uh, it's a very traditional method of joining case sides. Uh, it's not certainly not as strong as dovetails, but it's a much faster method of construction. And if you're just building utility cabinets, you know, like a, a small utility cupboard for the wall um, or a chest, of, like a, a six board chest, you know, to sit on the floor, rabbits and nails are a great way to go. They allow you to build quickly. Um, it's still a very strong joint, and uh, there are six board chests that are hundreds of years old, so it's a method that lasts the test of time. The other way that we see things joined, obviously, most often are um, are dovetails, and we start to see more dovetailed cases in the early 1700s when we're starting to get more furniture up off the floor, and I have a theory about why we start to see more dovetails um, you know, early in that early in the 18th century. And I'm, I'll save that for another day because it's kind of a long discussion. But, um, you know, we do start to see most cabinets or most casework joined with dovetailed corners starting around the early 18th century. Um, and, you know, that applies to things like bookcases and chest of drawers, um, you know, blanket chests. It's a very strong way to join the corners. If the glue fails, it's still a pretty strong joint because it can only be taken apart in one direction. So um, it is a very traditional way and a strong way to do it. In terms of putting those cases on a base, again, it depends on the style of construction. A chest of drawers, usually you would dovetail the corners. So you would have a, a box, essentially, and you would, in fact, build a separate base that would then attach to the bottom of that box. Um, and it, it could be attached with screws. It could just sit on the base and, and stay in place by friction. There's a lot of different ways that you could could have done it. Um, six board chests, the, the quote unquote base is usually built into the chest itself where you have the sides of the chest usually create separate feet instead of building a separate base. But there are cases where you might build a blanket chest and add feet to it that would create a sort of base. So that's certainly a way you can do it as well. Um, if you're really interested in traditional methods of constructing casework, I highly recommend um, a, a book by Jeffrey Green called uh, um, 
Oh, what is it? What's the title? It's uh, period 18th uh, period furniture of the 18th century, American furniture of the 18th century. I think it's called. The author is Jeffrey Green, and he builds a lot of traditional Chippendale Queen Anne style furniture. Um, so definitely check that out. There's a lot of good construction techniques and construction drawings in there that will give you a good basic understanding of how traditional casework was constructed. Even if you're not con- um, interested in the style, you know, the, the early to mid 18th century style of furniture, it's still, the book will still give you a great understanding of traditional casework construction so that you can then use that type of construction to build just about any style of casework you would like. Um, of course, if we go back earlier than the 18th century, there are other methods of joining um, joining casework. If you look at like the work that Peter Follensby does, the um, the frame and, it's a lot of frame and panel work. Um, he doesn't cut a lot of dovetails in the work that he does. It's a lot more mortise and tenon. You're making separate. You know, you're making your side pieces out of frame and panel instead of a solid piece. And a lot of times those frame and panel pieces are either uh, rabbited and glued or nailed or pegged. Um, So there's different ways you can attach the frame, the separate frames together to create a piece of casework. So, and uh, Green's book has some of that in it as well. So I definitely recommend checking that out, even if you're not into the uh, period furniture. So our next question comes from Max Steenbach. Max says, I find myself in need to make a box with beveled or compound angled dovetails. There seems to be myriad names for this type of joint. This is the joint that we often see with traditional serving trays and tool totes. Megan Fitzpatrick has a nice build example of the tool tote in in the book Classic American Furniture, but she glosses over the joinery. The motivation here is a shaker style rocking crib or cradle because we're expecting our first this year. Well, congratulations, Max. Anyhow, I noticed that you posted on a message board ages ago on this topic, but you and Shannon Rogers agreed that there wasn't much out there as far as instruction. Have you come across anything new that may help the novice dovetailer tackle this joint? Or perhaps since then you've had reason to use the joint and have some insight. Um, So I I understand the joint that you're talking about. And it's, it's in essence... You're talking about joining dovetail corners in a box shaped like a pyramid. So both sides angled out, the uh, both ends and both sides angle out at some some angle, and you need to join the sides with dovetails. So um, there are some sources of information for this. Fine Woodworking did an article several years ago. Um, it is available on their website, but that you do need a subscription to their website in order to get that article. So um, if you have a fine woodworking subscription, go ahead and, and look for um, look for that you know beveled dovetail um, article. There is also uh, it, it's it's touched on in Roy Underhill's book, The Woodwright's Apprentice, where he builds a sea chest where he where the sides are, are beveled sort of like a pyramid um, and dovetailed together. It's not completely clear how the dovetails are laid out in there. So it's going to take a little bit of experimentation if you're just going to use uh, Roy's book as an example. And because in true Roy fashion, you know, it's not, he wants you to figure some of it out and try it and do it. Um, it it's not sort of a step-by-step exactly how to do it. 
Um, there is also a great video by a gentleman named Paul Marcel, and he did a video a few years ago on YouTube about joining um, sides of different angles. So one side angled and one side um, vertical, both sides angled, etc. And he goes through all the different steps for all of those different variations. And so it's a really good video if you have a chance to watch that. It's about uh, about a half an hour long, I guess. And he goes through all the different iterations. Um, but it's not something that I can explain in an audio podcast. Um, so I'm not even going to try to do it. But what I will say is it really comes down to the layout. So the basics of it are you need to cut the angles on the ends of your pieces first. Everything is going to start out as a butt joint. So let's say, for example, you want your sides to angle out uh, 10 degrees. So you're starting up with two pieces of stock and you're going to cut the ends of those stock of, of each piece of stock at 10 degrees. So now you've got four pieces of stock with the ends instead of square to the edges, they're at 10 degrees to the edge. You're going to temporarily clamp those pieces. Uh, I like to use blue tape or, or, you know, green tape or whatever your favorite color tape is and tape them together generally in the orientation that they're going to go tape those corners together because the next thing you're going to do after making that um, the, the 10 degree angle on the ends of those boards, you need to figure out what the top and bottom bevel angle are. And they're not necessarily 10 degrees. The closer your angle is to perpendicular, the closer the angle of the top and bottom bevel is going to be to the same angle, but it's not going to be identical. So in order to figure that angle out, tape all those butt joint corners together, turn the box upside down so that the small portion of the pyramid is facing up, rest a bevel, the, the stock of a bevel on one side and let the blade of the bevel go across the bottom of the box. That's going to give you your bevel angle that you need to cut the long edges of each of the board sides to. Once you have that done, then you can lay out your dovetails. So everything is going to start with a butt joint. The dovetail layout is where things start to get a little complicated. And that's not something that I'm going to try to describe here on the show today because I, I just can't do it on an audio podcast. Uh, it's just too involved to try and describe how to do that joint on the podcast. But what I will say is that it's it really just comes down to the layout. If you can lay it out, then you should have no problem cutting it if you're comfortable cutting regular dovetails in 90 degree corners. So what I'm going to do, and I did already um, uh, email Max about this because um, he is a, a patron. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do this as this month's patron extra video. So if you're interested, if you're a patron of the show and you're interested in this style of dovetail, um, check, definitely check out this month's patron extra video because we're going to go through the process of how to cut this joint. So that's all for our listener questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, and I certainly hope that you do record a voice memo on your phone and email it to Bob at brfinewoodworking.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. 
And you can also go to brfindwoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about lighting in the shop. And it was suggested by listener Damien King. So let's listen to his question on the subject. Hey, Bob. Damien from Hudson Valley, New York here. I had a suggestion for a topic, and I was wondering if maybe you might talk about lighting requirements for a shop. I'm starting to feel like I don't have enough light in my shop. And even though I do have some raking light that I can put in place, I'm often dealing with shadows or just insufficient light. And so I'm looking to calculate how much I need in order to upgrade my shop. So I want to get your thoughts on that. All right. Thanks a lot and keep up the great work. Stay sharp. So shop lighting. Uh, thank you again, Damien, for that uh suggestion or question. Um, you know, you mentioned calculating and, and I think there are websites that will do that. So I'm not going to get into that. I'm not a, a lighting engineer. Um, so I don't want to get too bogged down in numbers and calculation and, and, you know, lumens and, uh, light meters and things like that. You can certainly go out and purchase light meters um, and check corners of your shop. You know, uh, photographers use these all the time. Um, but for me, there's a few basic principles that I think about when it comes to lighting my shop. Um, in fact, the first thing that I, I like to think about isn't the lighting at all, but it's the color of the walls in the shop. Um, the paint essentially, you know, if you look at most period shops and colonial Williamsburg is a great place to get a real feel for, um, what a period shop might've been like because most of their buildings are, are unlit. Most of the, the shop buildings where all the interpreters are working are unlit. Um, and any museum setting really where they do some type of living history, um, or interpretation, their buildings are usually going to be unlit. And if you look at the walls in all of those places, just about every one that you go into, the walls are going to be whitewashed or painted white um, or a very, very light color. If it's not, you know, if it's not a bright white, it's usually going to be some shade of white. And that's because obviously white is going to be the brightest and it's going to reflect the most amount of natural light. And that's what I try to mimic in my shop spaces if I can. Now, if you've seen any of my recent um, you know, blog posts or videos, you know, that I haven't done that in my recent shop because I'm, I'm just in a shed and, um, the shed that I'm in really needs to be torn down. Uh, and I'm going to be building a, a new shop. But if you look at my old shop, the walls were painted sort of a, a beigey, a light beigey color. Um, the, the ceiling was painted white and I tried to make the space as bright as possible. So that's where I really start is with the color of the interior walls. I try to get them white or as you know light a color as I can because that's going to reflect the most amount of natural light, which brings me to point number two, natural light. I like to try and get as much natural light into the space as possible. Now, I realize for a lot of people, that's not necessarily going to be possible. If you're in a basement, you may not have access to natural light. You may not have windows and most basements, even if they do have windows, have those little, um, 
you know, just the small windows that you, you probably couldn't even get out of if you needed to. Most don't have egress windows or large windows in a basement space unless you have a walkout basement. But if you have the opportunity, if, you, if you're in a garage where you have the ability to, um, you know, put some holes in the side of the, uh, in the sidewall of the garage or open the garage door or put, you know, a garage door, install a garage door that has windows. If you can get some windows in that garage space, you would be amazed at how much brighter and how much better that that space is going to be with natural light. If you are building your own shop, uh, in a separate building, or if you've got a shed, uh, whatever, if you can get natural light in there, natural light is the absolute best way to work, in my opinion. Um, I had one small window in my old shop back in New Jersey. In the shed that I'm in now, I have two small windows. And there are plenty of times where even with the small windows that I have, I'll work in here without any overhead lights on um, because the natural light, I find, is just fantastic for, for working. Um, after natural light, you know, after trying to maximize the amount of natural light that you can, obviously the next step is going to be to look at some type of overhead light. These days, most everything is going to, seems to be going to LED. So I look at, you know, what are the goals for overhead light? Well, obviously it's to provide the best light that you can when you can't get natural light, whether it's because you don't have enough windows or you can't put enough windows in, or you're in a basement, um, or you do work, most of your work in the evenings after you get home from work. So it's dark outside and you don't get that natural light. Um, you want to try and mimic that natural light as much as possible. So I typically look for overhead lighting that is daylight color temperature. And, and um, there's a lot of information on color temperature of lighting. Um, and you can go out and and research that. Uh, it's the best way. I'm not an expert on it. So, um, you know, the best thing that I can suggest is to just research some lighting solutions with a, a daylight or natural light color temperature. And usually that's about 5,500 to 6,500 kelvins, depending on the manufacturer of the particular lamp that you're looking at. Um, and, and Kelvin, Kelvin is just a, it's a temperature rating essentially. And if you look at just about any type of light bulb, whether it be an incandescent, um, a halogen, a fluorescent, or an LED, they're usually going to have a color temperature. The higher that temperature is, the whiter that light is going to be. So when you look at bulbs that are rated as what they call soft white, they're usually around 2,700 Kelvins, and they have that very yellow tone to them. Um, bright white, which you will frequently find in kitchens, that white is kind of a blue tint. That's what your your most fluorescent bulbs are usually bright white, and they're usually running at about 3,500 Kelvins, um, and they have that blue look to them. They they kind of make everything look sort of blue and. Uh, most people don't like the look of fluorescent lighting because of that blue color that it, it imparts to everything. Um, and then you get up into the daylight range where you're looking at 5,500 to 6,500 Kelvins, which is really just a bright white light. And it's going to be best for photography. It's going to be best for video, but it's also going to be best for working because it's going to mimic 
what pieces are going to look like most naturally when they're in the house um, under, you know, when, when the daylight and the sunshine is coming through the windows, they're really going to show you the true color of your finishes and things like that. So the daylight color temperature to me is a really important thing, especially because I do a lot of photography for magazine articles and the blog, um, as well as video work. Um, and so I really like the, um, the, the, the daylight color temperature for that. In terms of how much light, this is this really comes down to your preference in the way that you work. You know, if you're working, if you've got a shop where you've got a lot of machines and you, you really want to try and eliminate shadows, um, I would say, you know, you really want to try and put as many overhead lights in as you can. Um, you know, I'm looking at a, a space in the basement of my new cabin that I'm building to move into for a temporary shop. Um, and I'm looking at putting eight four foot led style lights. And these are, these are tubes sort of like a fluorescent fixture where it's a four foot long tube, but they're led. And I'm looking at putting eight of them, eight four footers in a space that is approximately 30 feet long by maybe it might be, Oh, I don't know. 14, maybe 14 feet wide. So about the size of a one car garage, let's say. And I'm, I'm looking at putting about eight fixtures in there. I think it's going to take about that much to really light that place up. Um, and to me, what I'm looking to do is eliminate shadows in most places. Shadows are great for photography, but they're not necessarily great for working unless you're doing some carving. Um, in which case you may want, you know, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but for general work, usually you want to flood the area with light so you can see everything well. You can see your layout lines. You can see, um, you know, pencil marks and things like that. So you want to try and get as much light in there as you can. But that should give you some kind of gauge, you know, putting, putting eight fixtures, eight four-foot fixtures into a space that is, is roughly, you know, 300, just a little bit over 300 square feet. Um, I'm not sure exactly you know, how many lumens that, that these fixtures put out. Um, but when you put eight of them in a space that size, it's going to be pretty bright and it's going to light up just about every corner of the shop. So in my opinion, you really can't have too much light. What I would suggest if you're going to upgrade the lighting in your shop is, is to go with LEDs because most LEDs can be changed. A lot of them these days are coming so that you can actually change the color temperature right on the fixture itself. Um, I actually just bought one for the kitchen in the, the new cabin that we're building. Um, and you can, there's a switch right on the led itself, right on the fixture where you can change it from soft white to bright white to daylight, just with the flip of a switch. Uh, you don't have to change out the bulbs or anything. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so I would suggest, you know, just get as many as you can, um, and get the place as bright as possible, but I would also suggest splitting up the fixtures into multiple um, multiple switches so that you can turn different fixtures on and off as necessary to, to adjust the light levels in the space because there may be times when you want to reduce the amount of light. Maybe you need to see some shadow because uh, maybe you're doing some carving or some three-dimensional work, some turning or whatever. And the shadow lines are really helpful in those situations. Well, you may want to be able to turn off some of the overhead lighting 
while still a lot, you know, still keeping some of it on. Um, so it can be very beneficial to put that overhead lighting on multiple switches if you can, so that you can control that lighting and turn some on while leaving, you know, turning so leave, turning some off while leaving some of the others on, instead of just having a single switch that, you know, just floods the entire area with light. So then the the last type of lighting that I always have in my shop is directional lighting. And I know you mentioned this, Damien, in, in uh, your voicemail, in, in your voice memo. Um, I use directional lighting a lot because I'm doing a lot of photography in my shop and I'm doing um, some video filming in the shop as well. And what I find, uh, and I found this especially true in my old shop in New Jersey, is that overhead lighting can be very harsh for photography and video because it you get it's not the shadows it does eliminate all the shadows which can be okay but in photography that doesn't always look great um, but it creates a lot of glare you'll have you know reflections off of things especially I'll, I'll actually get reflection off my forehead because um, I have naturally oily skin and believe it or not the the um, the light coming from an overhead light if I'm standing run, right underneath an overhead light you know, obviously by the naked eye, you wouldn't really notice it because our eyes are so able to adjust. But when I focus a camera lens on myself, um, I might actually see like a hotspot, like a reflection off of my, my, my greasy forehead. So, um, and if you're taking pictures of, or, or video of reflective surfaces, like, you know, saw blades and, and things like that, overhead lighting can tend to have a lot of hot spots and a lot of reflection. So that's where directional lighting comes in. It's great for photography and videography, of course, um, but it is also great for task lighting. Um, in my shop, I have several different styles of directional light. The first and most inexpensive are the cheap clamp lights that you can get at just about any hardware store. Um, there, it's just a silver reflector essentially that you screw a bulb into and it clamps onto whatever. Um, I use those over by my, my grinder and my sharpening station. Um, I, I will use one by my drill press when I set that up. Um, and they're good to be able to move them around. Um, they're good, you know, to be able to swap out bulbs and change the color temperature if you need to. Um, but they're, they're just good for overall directional lighting. And back in my old shop, a lot of times what I would do when I was taking pictures would be to turn off all the overhead lighting and use three of those clamp lights for three point lighting. Um, and it would, you know, you could take really good pictures that way of, uh, of things that you're working on in your workbench, but it was also great when I was doing things like carving because that turning off the overhead lights and just using that raking light from the side really helped to show the the depth and the shadow uh, when you're doing that carving. Uh, these days, in terms of working at my bench with directional lighting, I don't use the clamp lights much anymore. I use those more for task lighting at different stations, like I mentioned, my grinder and my sharpening bench. But I have a couple of um, inexpensive photo um, soft boxes, and I use those for my video work. I use them for my photography work. But I will also turn them on, you know, a lot of times just and just use those at my workbench rather than turning on any overhead light. Again, because that directional light, 
I can get it to uh, mimic natural light so nicely by positioning those um, soft boxes to the sides of my workbench rather than having light coming directly from overhead. Um, and it's, it's much less harsh than overhead light. You do get some shadow. So if that's, that's something that bothers you, you may want to consider, you know, some overhead light as well. But I find that the, the shadow lines actually can be bene- very beneficial for a lot of tasks. Um, you know, when you're, when you're doing layout with a marking knife, actually, um, shadow lines are, are great because the, uh, it actually helps you see the knife line better if you have some shadow line as opposed to overhead light, which will flood everything. And then a lot of times the marking life line will disappear. So um, I will very frequently just use my directional light, just use my soft boxes while I'm working at the bench and uh, turn all the overhead lights off. So if you've got strong enough directional light, like a couple of photo soft boxes, they can really work wonders and they're fantastic because you can move them around, um, you know, for different things. They do tend to get in the way from time to time, um, you know, but um, I do really like them for detail work at the bench if I'm, you know, doing dovetails or, um, you know, doing carving or anything like that. Um, that that raking light can really be quite nice to work at as opposed to overhead light. So I hope that gives you some ideas. Um, as I said, I don't think you can ever have enough light or too much light, I should say. Um, so certainly don't be, um, don't be shy about mounting lots more light on your ceiling or, or getting yourself uh, some soft boxes. You know, even if you're not going to do photo or video work, um, to me, a, a cheap photography lighting set, you know, you can get them off eBay and Amazon uh, with just a couple of soft boxes is actually a fantastic solution uh, for portable lighting. And, and I can really light my bench up with just a couple of soft boxes and just put them off to the side and I can get a lot of work done. Um, and it's actually really nice light having those, uh, those soft boxes there. Uh, lighting up the bench. So, you know, if you're struggling and you, and you either don't have the ability or the budget, you know, if you're if you're not able to um, install more hardwired lighting yourself, if you're not comfortable with that electrical work, or you can't have somebody come in and do that, the soft boxes are a great way to get some extra light. Um, and you can pick up a soft box kit on eBay or Amazon, you know, for like. 60 or $70 for comes with a, a couple of soft boxes, um, eight, eight light bulbs. I think it's like a, a, a 2000 watt equivalent is what my, my soft boxes are. They're actually compact fluorescent. So they're, they don't pull 2000 Watts. Um, but I think they're 2000 watt equivalent complex, compact fluorescent, uh, soft boxes and the light coming off of them is fantastic. Um, and I, I think you, uh, you'll really enjoy it if you, you can uh, set something like that up. If you, if you can't expand your overhead lighting, uh, a couple of soft boxes are a really nice way to uh, add some additional lighting around your bench. And it's, they're great because they're movable. You can move them around the shop to different areas and feel like you've got lots of nice natural light. So definitely a good option uh, if you are not able to put in additional overhead lights. And again, don't overlook the color of your walls. Uh, to me, that's one of the most important things in the shop is to have bright walls. So if your current area, you know, if you're working in a basement and you've got cinder block walls, 
get some of that white cinder block paint and paint the walls and, and see what a difference it'll make because you'd be surprised what how much more light you'll get in a space just by painting the walls white. So give that a try as well. Um, and I think you'll be quite happy with the results. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt024. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.